Good morning. It is Kale and Company Live right here on WKXL. Great to have you with us at 1450 AM, 103.9 FM in the Capital Region, 1019 FM in Manchester and beyond, and around the world, around the clock at nhtalkradio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Northeast Delta Dental has individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. Learn more and find your plan at anydelta.com or deltadentalcoversme.com. My guest on this portion of Kale & Company is an award-winning American television producer, filmmaker, and journalist who has produced television news and documentaries in Russia, Ukraine, and the former Soviet Union for CBS, NBC, ABC, and PBS, and is responsible for bringing Sesame Street to Russia from 1993 to 1997. She is the author of Muppets in Moscow, the unexpected, crazy, true story of making Sesame Street in Russia. And uh, we welcome to the uh, program Natasha Lance Rogoff. Natasha, good morning. Good morning, Ken. Great to be on the show. Well, it is great to have you with us, Natasha. And uh, how do you say Sesame Street in Russian? Ulitsa Sizam. Oh, it that means was... Sesame Street in Russian. It, there you go. So, I, and uh, you, you say it beautifully. And I understand, Natasha, that uh, you changed your first name to Natasha uh, long before you uh, journeyed to Russia. Yeah, well, well before the Muppets, and actually, well before I spoke a word of Russian, and. I, uh, I I changed it when I was 16 years old and just thought I had the wrong name. And this did not make my parents very happy, though. <laughs> so how, how did the opportunity to produce Sesame Street in Russia come about? In a, in a very random way, Ken, because uh, I was not a children's television producer and had you know, did not have children or that much of an interest in children. I was a documentary film producer and had been working in what was then the Soviet Union in the 1980s to the early 1990s and had just finished a film about the collapse of the Soviet empire um, where where I had been embedding with um, conservative uh, fascists who were trying to prevent the breakdown of uh, their country, understandably, but they were also uh, very anti-Western, anti-capitalist, and two executives from uh, Sesame uh, Sesame Street. Uh, the the they came to a screening I had in New York City of the film I had done, uh, which was called Russia for Sale, and they asked me to help them bring Sesame Street to to Russia which was uh, supported by the U.S. government in part that, you know, then-Senator Biden was um, had spearheaded some approval, congressional approval for funding for a Russian version of Sesame Street. So I looked at them, and I thought they were crazy. I mean, I was like, <laughs> did you just watch my film? I mean, this is like, <laughs> you know, pretty dark <laughs> compared to the Muppets. And uh, but it was very intriguing, you know the the idea that the um, you know the Muppets could be ambassadors of idealistic values and of tolerance and freedom of expression. I mean, it was it was something I'd never thought about, you know, before. And 
you know, it was super challenging, the, the, the obstacles we were up against, even from day one. And, of course, uh, you know, everybody loves the Muppets, or so I thought. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so uh, had you ever seen the, the Muppets? I mean, I'm sure you, you had heard, them, heard oh. of them, but had you ever seen them? Yes, yeah. yes. I yeah. mean, this was, you know, this was the 1990s. Right. The show had been on since the 1969. But I was not a child of Sesame Street because I had missed it, you know, by a couple of years. Right. Um, but, you know, I was a huge fan. The humor was so brilliant. The puppets, incredibly original and, um, you know, lovable. So, yeah, I was definitely a fan, but it was just not in my, in my, um, you know, my, my circle. You know, it was just not, I didn't have children and at that time. I mean, during the course of making Sesame Street uh, in Russia, in Moscow, with about 400 artists, uh, my life completely completely changed. And I, you know, I write about this in the book too, but I, uh, you know, met a guy, got married, was pregnant while I was producing the show. So a lot of, a lot of changes happened as a result of the Muppets in my life and Sesame Street. So you said there were a lot of challenges in, in producing uh, Sesame Street in Russia. Uh, what, what were some of them? The, uh, well, when, when the country collapsed, I mean, it, it was uh, a very difficult time. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's an awful, I have to say, you know, heartbreaking time right now, too, looking at where we are today, uh, you know, compared to where we were 30 years ago. Um, so it was also a very difficult transition period for uh, the Soviet people in the 1990s. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it was it was also filled with a lot of hope uh, as compared with now, where people, you know, the, the country was just opening up to the West for the first time in 70 years. Um, they were, uh, the country was trying a new type of system. And um, for us uh, trying to make Sesame Street uh, in Moscow, we initially um, had uh, our sponsor, uh, a Russian sponsor's car was blown up, um, and uh, I had been in that car three weeks before the explosion trying to negotiate a broadcast deal. And within the first uh, year and a half, both of our uh, broadcast partners from Russia's largest TV station were assassinated. And th- these were people who were advising us, and me especially. They were confidants about how to navigate the TV industry in Russia. So it was, it was a pretty uh, shocking and violent place to work uh, because it was so chaotic, um, you know, as the, the central government, you know, had collapsed and was quite weak. And also a lot of the former republics were breaking off and becoming new countries like Ukraine, Armenia, Georgia. So this was a, you know, if you can imagine what it was like if you're, you know, imagine our own country, you know, where you have states splitting off and declaring their independence. Very difficult time. In some ways, however, you, you embrace the chaos. You, you uh, not the assassination attempts, but uh, you, you embrace some of that chaos over there. I was, I think, uh, looking in hindsight now, you know, when I was... Uh, I, I was, um, 
people are always asking me, you know, what made you stay? Why didn't you, you know, leave? It just sounds, you know, you 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 faced, uh, you know, not only the violence, but it really difficult cultural clashes with the community of artists that you were working with. And, you know, like the writers were writing scripts initially that were so uh, abstract, dark, and escapist. Um, like one one writer wrote a story uh, teaching the letter D, as in D for depression. Mm. So, yeah, <laughs> you know there were there were numerous art, you know, uh, challenges uh, you know, around all kinds of um, cultural differences. But you know there was there was this feeling that you were part of something that was really bigger than yourself. That you you know that the show that the new show could actually make an impact and bring laughter and joy and hope and an understanding of open values, you know, like tolerance and, you know, uh, I don't know kindness, you know, in the society. And, and I wasn't alone in this. My, my colleagues from Moscow had the same hope and I couldn't leave. You know, it, it was, you were really, it was a really different time where you felt like this was part of something that could change Russia for the better, first on television and then hopefully in real life. Our guest is Natasha Lance Rogoff, and uh, her book is Muppets in Moscow. And uh, just a, an incredible read, The Unexpected Crazy True Story of making Sesame Street in Russia. And uh, Natasha, was was there a point where you said to yourself, what am I doing here? <laughs> I, I would say that came many times, many Ma- times. Uh, and once I, um, you know, had a, when I had a boyfriend and, you know, he was like, what are you doing? You know, because I was over in Moscow uh, for so, you know, so much of the time. And then when I married him and I was pregnant, I think that was the most difficult time because uh, there were there were enormous um, obstacles, you know, finding food that I could eat, and um, the uh, our our production was nearly shut down. So many and at anydelta.com or taken over by soldiers with AK-47. And you know we we lost all our equipment and the scripts and the and the uh, set design ideas. Stay so there us. were there were many times when I when I felt like this is it. I just don't think I can do this anymore. And physically, it was a very tough production. I'm sure it was. Natasha, can you stay with us for a couple of minutes? We have to take a quick break here. And we'll be right back. Kale and Company live here on WKXL NHTalkRadio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Stay with us. Welcome back. Kale and Company live here on WKXL 1450 AM, 103.9 FM in Concord, 101.9 FM in Manchester and vicinity. And around the world, around the clock at nhtalkradio.com. Chatting with Natasha Lance Rogoff, the author of Muppets in Moscow, the unexpected crazy true story of making Sesame Street in Russia. 
And uh, you mentioned during this time uh, you were married and uh, you had gotten married and you had an experience while you were on your honeymoon uh, when you received a call from one of your colleagues. Can you uh, tell us about that? Yeah, I, this was, uh, um, <clears throat> we were working inside uh, Russia's largest TV station in Moscow. And um, I got a call the day after I got married that our office was being taken over by uh, soldiers in um, with AK-47. And this was, we our office was on the, sixth, the 11th floor of this TV station. This is the same TV station today, which... Uh, from which uh, Putin's propaganda is uh, streamed out across Russia today. And inside this, they were uh, the soldiers came in. They they took our equipment and our um, scripts, everything, and they even stole our office mascot, which was a um, life-size Elmo doll. <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> like looking at this. Soldier walking down the hall with our Elmo on one side and his, you know, AK-47 on the other was not what I imagined making a children's TV show, an educational show from a nonprofit company would actually be like. But that is what happened. So where where did you go from there? Uh, we started again. I mean, just like the many times that I write about in the book when we were, uh, you know, where we nearly failed multiple times. I would say that's how the show was made, with multiple failings. Um, but uh, uh, we just started again. The the um, We had an incredible uh, resident producer there, uh, Robin Hessman, who um, assembled the writers together in, in, her, um, in her apartment, and other people were working in their own apartments all over Moscow. There were no cell phones at that time. Uh, people did not have computers, uh, and so we had to find other ways of uh, connecting with each other. Most people didn't have phones in their homes either. Um, so it was a very challenging time of trying to coordinate our team without having a place for people to come. But we did it, and uh, over the next several months, uh, uh, we worked that way until we could uh, build a new office, which we did. Boy, the, the letter P for perseverance, I'll, I'll tell you, that's what uh, that should have been uh, <laughs> standing for, uh, because you, you certainly uh, persevered through a, a lot of uh, a lot of obstacles uh, while you were there and uh, producing Sesame Street in uh, Moscow. And what what impact do you think the show had uh, in, in Russia? When you when you talk about, you know, perseverance, I mean, this was. The people who worked on the show, uh, these are writers, producers, animators, filmmakers. They, it, you know, I really look to them because they had such passion for, you know, how the show could change their country and affect millions, the lives of millions of children, and, you know, model new ways of seeing the world that I really look at what's happening you know, now. And I think about how the, uh, the young men that are leaving Russia because they don't want to fight and they're marching out of Russia across the border, that they are children of Ulitsa Sazam. They're in their late 20s and their 30s. 
they grew up on our show. They know the uh, Slavic Muppets. They love those Muppets. And this is also true for the uh, Ukrainian men and women who are fighting for their independence now. It's the same age cohort. And they also grew up on Ulysses Sazam. So everywhere I go now, when I'm meeting people, I was just in New York and talked to a Georgian hairdresser, you know, who, who talked about how she grew up on Ulysses Sazam and was now working in the U.S. And, you know, someone else from another uh, a region of the former Soviet Union, they loved the show. The show was a huge hit. It lasted for 10 years, well into Putin's era. And it was as popular as the American Sesame Street show is in the U.S. So we did, I do believe we made a huge impact, um, to di- you know, looking back on this. And I just hope that the, you know, values that the show um, modeled will uh, have a chance again to flower in the country as things change, which I hope they do in Russia and in Ukraine. Why did the show go off the air in Russia? You know, it's, um, Ken, it's a very difficult, that was a very difficult uh, um, question for me to get answered. And I was in Moscow in January of 2020, right before the pandemic, interviewing my former colleagues. And, you know, it was, it was, everybody gave me a different answer and it was kind of vague. But the general reason is that, um, you know, relations between the U.S. and Russia had already deteriorated. Uh, leading up to the invasion of Crimea. And Putin was already cracking down on independent press. And there was, what I was told is that the, um, the, the, uh, the head, one of the people working on the show uh, had been asked to leave. And the rest of the team said, well, if you, if you, uh, you know, fire this person, then we're going to leave. And it was basically a grab to take over the show from the content and ideology side. So eventually, uh, it just, it just uh, didn't exist anymore. Um, but it, it, it did educate a generation of children, and for that, I am extremely proud of the accomplishment that we all, uh, that we all did. Do you ever foresee it uh, going back on the air in, in Russia? Perhaps I'm naive in the face of what's happening right now that is so horrific. But yes, I do. I do. I, I'm, you know, I'm always hopeful. I mean, wars end. They have all ended in history, and this one will end too. And I do hope that the show will be able to uh, come back and be created in a new way that reflects what will become new Russia. At one point, uh, I read where a, fush, a, a famous, I should say, Russian children's author blamed your show for some of the chaos uh, in the country uh, and some of the chaos it was experiencing at that time. Is that true? Yes. Uh, you know, along with uh, Pizza Hut, McDonald's, this is a, um, a popular narrative that's shared by Putin as well, you know, where um, the 1990s is... Uh, painted as a period of extreme chaos and, um, uh, you know, America's and the West's attempt to muscle in and, um, 
you know, influence the both the economy and politics and culture of the country, thus destroying Russian culture. That, that's a narrative that's often repeated by Putin. And to some extent, it is correct that the period of the 1990s were extremely difficult and filled with, um, you know, many people who were uh, flooding into Russia, seeing it as a new market that could be exploited, but not everybody. And, you know, there were also people like me and my team who were really trying to do something good. So I think both of these things existed at that time. Do you stay in touch with any of the people that uh, you work with on the show? I have done, yes. I mean, the um, when the war broke out in February, I you know I was already in touch with my many of my former colleagues on WhatsApp, and I was you know of course writing the book and interviewing them, uh, confirming stories, and um, you know I hadn't been in touch with them in a long time, and when this happened, uh, you know it was it was just shocking. Um, and, uh, several of my colleagues had to leave Russia, uh, within 24 hours because they had been actively speaking out against the, um, invasion and, um, they had to get in, you know, get out through other countries, third countries. Um, so it was, it's, it's been, it's been horrible and I'm still in touch with many of them. Well, Natasha, we appreciate your time this morning. It's a, a fascinating book, and it's called Muppets in Moscow. And uh, it's fascinating, the unexpected, crazy, true story of making Sesame Street in Russia. We appreciate your time. Uh, much success uh, on the book. Where is it available? It's available, uh, thanks for asking, Ken. It's available on Amazon and at uh, indie, you know, local bookstores. Um, and uh, it's got five stars on Amazon and a ton of reviews to help people make a decision if they want to buy it. So thank you so much for talking about it today. Ken. Yeah. Natasha, our pleasure, and uh, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Take Have a care. great day. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you as well. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Kale and Company, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Northeast Delta Dental has individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. You can learn more and find your plan at anydelta.com or deltadentalcoversme.com. Coming up, we'll chat with the head coach of the Concord High School Hockey Crimson Tide, Duncan Walsh, right after these words. Kale and Company live on WKXL and nhtalkradio.com. Stay with us. It's Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Great to have you along with us. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. And uh, joining us on uh, Kale and Company this morning, in his 33rd season uh, as head coach of the Concord High Crimson Tide hockey team, it is... Duncan Walsh, Dunk, welcome back to the show. Great to have you with us. Hey, thanks, Ken. Good to be here. And, uh, Dunk, uh, first of all, uh, we send our condolences from all of us here at WKXL uh, on the passing of your dad uh, recently. I know he was a huge supporter of the Crimson Tide o over the years, and uh, 
Saturday night, I would imagine, Dunk, uh, had to be an emotional one for you uh, at the Everett Arena uh, when you walked into the building and, and knew that uh, he, he wasn't going to be there. Yeah, I mean, he'd been such a fan and um, just loved going to the games and interacting with the parents and people. Everybody knew him, so uh, certainly Saturday was tough. Um, you know, he sat basically in the same seat for 30, 32 years. I think he missed two games over the, the course of those years. And, um, so yeah, it's been a tough couple of weeks, but, um, you know, we're, we're dealing with it and he's, he had a good life, you know, and, um, but it is tough to have not have him there at the game. Yeah, I can certainly, uh, imagine that. Now I've got to ask you something, Doc, you, your, your dad's first name was Richard. And and his nickname was Dunk D U N K. How how did that come about? You know, I it was a high school thing. So he went to St. John's. He graduated in '54. It was it was a high school thing. And actually, you know what? I've heard the story, but right now I can't even think of the exact reason. <laughs> My sister would probably know more. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was. I mean, so so much growing up, people thought I was a junior. Um, but his real name is Richard. But like, um, if you look at his, like, high school yearbook, it says in his picture, Dunk, like, nickname. So it was a high school thing. So that had to be the, the inspiration for, for naming you Duncan. I'm assuming it was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. But, yeah, it, but, and no one, no one called him Richard except for his, his mother, I think, was the only one that called him Richard. <laughs> and everybody else called him Dunk. Right. Right. Yeah, and and so they probably just assumed that you were Dunk Junior, right? But not not so. Right. right. Nope. Nope. <laughs> he even spelled it differently. Yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Did he dunk a basketball at one time, or? Uh... I think so. He was only he was only about five nine. Yeah. Five, so I don't think he was a. He played basketball, but I don't think he ever dunked one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe he was dunking donuts. I I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so you were named Dunk, and uh, what what will you remember most about your dad? Well, he was just such a, such a good dad as far as, like, I mean, growing up, like, he was a baseball guy, and, and like, I can remember, you know, playing, you know, Little League. He was my Little League coach, and um, but just such a just patient. Uh, one thing he, he, he's got over me was patience. Like, um, he was, like, the most patient guy. Um, he was a carpenter, and he would take his time and stuff like that, but he was just a good just a really good guy, and um, my sister and I were lucky to have my parents growing up because they were so supportive of anything we did. And um, um, so he's just, you know, just such a good guy. And um, and you know, like I said, he's going to be missed. But as I understand it, not always patient with the Boston Red Sox. Well, I mean, you know what? He <laughs> the, he was part of that generation that just you know, suffered for years and years, and then 78, I mean, 78, they had the one-game playoff, and then 86, I remember, I was like 23 at the time, and I know exactly where I was when the ball went through Buckner's legs, <laughs> and I remember coming home, and he was sitting in his chair, and I'm like, I, I remember saying, they're never going to do it, they're yeah. never going to win it, <laughs> but, but they did, so I'm glad he got to see all that, you know. Yeah, got to see uh, four World Series uh, championships, so... I, I know. I think I think everybody of, of a certain age, Duncan, you're of that certain age as well, uh, that remembers where they were when that ball went through Bill Buckner's legs in Game Six of the '86 World yep. Series. Yep. I think, oh yeah. I think everybody does. <laughs> you know, I, I I think that of all the sports, Dunk, that that hockey parents 
uh, have to be the most dedicated. I mean, very early practices and, and, and so on and uh, all the time that is spent and, and, quite frankly, the money that is spent as well. Is that the way uh, your, your parents were? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't quite as costly back then, but I can remember, um, and I think I was, like, in 1970, I was seven. And, of course, Bobby Orr, I mean, the reason we played hockey was all of a sudden Bobby Orr was on the scene and people were watching the Bruins. And so I think that must have been my interest, watching, saying I wanted to play hockey. And so, I mean, it wasn't as costly back then, but um, the time is pretty much the same. The season is the same length. and. You're right. We would get up early to not only for practice, but sometimes you'd have an away game in Massachusetts. It's you know eight in the morning, so you're up at you know five thirty, whatever. So yeah, if you're a hockey parent, you better you better realize that you're in for the long haul because it's 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 quite a commitment. Um, and not only that, the time of the year, it's winter, it's cold. You're getting in your car. It's just yeah, it is. I mean, <laughs> hockey parents are pretty dedicated, and now it's, it's turned into it's so financial, it's so expensive now. Uh, hopefully, it keeps it continues to. to um, I don't know if it'll keep growing, but hopefully, it it stays the same because it is tough. I mean, I can't imagine my kids are twenty eight and thirty one, but it's expensive now. Youth hockey, so. Oh, there's no, there's no doubt about it. So, so what do you remember? You're talking about Bobby Orr, and that's how uh, your hockey interest uh, began. What do, what do you remember about your early years uh, playing hockey? Well, I played. Concord Youth Hockey, and I remember my first year. Back then, there was house league. With, you know, now, there's no house league. It's all travel. And there's, you know, there's a one-team, a two-team, a three-team, a four-team. Um, you can find a team. And now, back then, it was it was one travel team and um, all, then the house league. Um, so I remember my first time travel. I remember, actually, I remember being a mite playing in the house league. And then at the end of the year, they had a team that was playing a tournament. So it was like a, I guess they would pick pick a team and go play in a tournament. I remember Bud LeCurran, who was actually my high school coach, um, calling me, and I was like seven or eight, and saying, yeah, you want to play? And I remember on the phone saying, no, I'm not playing. I was like like nervous, so I'm not playing. But <laughs> I, actually, I, I ended up going. And then Bud LeCurran ended up being my high school coach for four years at Brady. So um, then I played, you know, the travel league with, you know, my first year with Squirt. And Dr. Carlson, Virgil Carlson was our coach. And Kent was on that. We had actually we had two kids on that team that played in the NHL. Kent Carlson and uh, Doug Brown grew up here until he was about nine. Yeah. And then moved yeah. to Massachusetts. He played in the NHL for a long time. So that's pretty cool. We had two kids on our squirt one travel team back in nineteen seventy two that played in the NHL. That is something. That is really something. Not many people could say that. And you mentioned you played high school hockey at uh, Bishop Brady in Concord. What are some of your, your fondest memories of uh, those years at Brady with the Green Giants? Well, I mean, we had a great coach. Bud was the best. He was such a you know, great, great motivator, and kids loved him. And um, old school, I don't think he'd survive today, uh, but he uh, he had a way about him to push the right buttons and motivate like no other coach I've ever been around. Um and, you know, we had a great goalie, Bruce Gillies, played at UNH. Joey Dinapoli was on our team. He played at UNH. So we had we had some good players. We just didn't have the depth. You know, Brady's a small school. so. But we did well. We got to the finals twice. And lost all times, but pretty good for a, a small little school back then to do that well. Um, actually, Ken, you called one of the, the – one of my greatest memories was uh, my junior year. We beat Memorial in triple overtime. And 
I got, I got a tape of you and Jack Edwards doing the game, so it was, uh, that was a great win for us. <laughs> I, I remember it well, and uh, I, I'm glad that somebody still has a copy of that. You know? <laughs> I, I, I got to find it. I don't know if anybody's got a cassette recorder to play it. Right, I know it. <laughs> They're kind of obsolete these days. But you must be pushing some of the right buttons, Dunk. Uh, nine state championships, to your credit, at uh, Concord High, three in a row. And, uh, you know, you, you learned a lot over the years from the, the coaches you had and uh, and then as passing it along to the, the players that you've had over the 33 years at, at Concord High School. Dunk, can you hold on just a minute? We have to take a quick break for a commercial. Yep. All right. Duncan Walsh is with us, head coach of hockey at Concord High School, 33 years on the job. Who stays 33 years on a job these days? And uh, nine state titles, three in a row for Dunk, and uh, hopefully a lot more. We'll take a break. Kale & Company continues here on WKXL and uh, nhtalkradio.com. Presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Stay with us. Welcome back. Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Our guest is Duncan Walsh, head coach, 33 years at Concord High School. And, uh, Dunk, we talked about uh, your days at Bishop Brady and then off to uh, Plymouth State, where you, you still hold uh, a lot of the school's uh, offensive records at, uh, at Plymouth State. Yeah, I went to Plymouth right after high school, and then uh, I played for Dave Webster up there, who's been a longtime coach. You know, and, and it's talking about, like, commitment. Um, you had to really like hockey to play back then. I've, I've been to their rink. You know, they got a brand-new rink the last, I don't know, 10 years ago, and uh, those kids have no idea how lucky they are because we played at Holderness, which was outdoors. It had a roof, but, but it was outdoors. <laughs> And we played, we practiced there, and there was some cold days, like I say, you know, Plymouth, the wind whipping, and, um, but, you know, we loved playing, and the first two years, we weren't very good. My junior year, we, I think we were 500, but my senior year, we got to the D3 North Finals. We, we had a really good team my senior year and did well, so, so it ended well, and I had great, great teammates up there and friendship, you know, that's still today, and, um, Dave, and Dave Webster and Chuck Yeager were the coaches and still stay in contact with them, so. Great experience, small school, but um, that was a lot of fun. So when did you think, Doug, that uh, coaching would be something you'd like to pursue? I knew growing up I was going to be a coach, but I thought I'd coach baseball because growing up my father, like my father's a baseball guy, and growing up I think baseball was my favorite sport. Um, and, you know, like a lot of kids, whatever season you're in, that's the sport you like. But um, then I went to Plymouth and played hockey, and – I was a better hockey player than I was baseball, so that's why I was able to play hockey. But um, and then I just I got out of college, I graduated in '86, and um, there was a assistant assistant slash JV uh, position at Concord High School, so I applied for it, got it, and Bill Harbert Senior at the time he hired me, and I was an assistant at Concord High for four years, three years under Tom Walton, and then one year under Vic Stanfield, and um, then in '90, summer of '90. I got the the head job, so that was good, and that was uh, Mr. Harvick Sr. Um, I think he was retiring that summer, so that might have been his last hire. So, uh, um, and then they never left. 
<laughs> you know, it's funny you're talking about your first uh, assistant coaching job under Tom Walton. I happened to meet meet uh, Coach Walton just the other day. I, I, I had never met him and met him uh, ju- just the other day. And, uh, you know, we were talking about you and the, the great success that, uh, that you've had. And uh, it, it was uh, really something to meet him. I had heard about him for many years, but uh, never had the opportunity to meet him and, and did uh, just the other day. You know, I got to ask, what did he mean to you? No, I mean, he was a longtime teacher at the Brunlet, so a lot of people knew Tom Walton. He was the guy that people knew. And, you know, he gave me a chance, and, and he let me do a lot, too, as a, as a coach under him. He, you know, he wasn't like I was just moving the pucks. You know, he let me he let me do stuff and, and be involved, so that was good. So what were your thoughts, Dunk, when Tara Mounsey came along on the scene? Great all-around athlete, obviously, and uh, in her high school days, uh, maybe the best hockey player uh, in the state. I mean, male or female, playing on the the uh, the, the men's or boys' team. And, and what 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 were your thoughts when you first encountered uh, Tara Mounsey? Well, back in those days, you knew you knew the kids coming up because they all played in Concord. Now. We have kids trying out. I've never seen them because they play Monarch, Avalanche, all these different programs. So back then, we saw all, all the kids. So I remember seeing her as like a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old. That, yeah, she's going to be good enough to play, definitely. So it wasn't like a big surprise our freshman year that she made it because I had watched her. Um, yeah, obviously, she's, uh, you know, they don't come around like that. She was a great player. And all the kids on the team knew her. Like, they had grown up playing with her. So it wasn't, like, weird where all of a sudden, oh, there's a girl on our team. Because those kids, you know, the kids she graduated with, Sean Whitehead and Mac Gray, and all those kids, the Frews, the Slopers, the Herricks, they all knew her um, and had played with her. So it, it was just kind of like, oh, yeah, it's Tara. She's a girl, but she's a really good player on our team. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, obviously had great success her senior year. She was uh, player of the year and in Division One, and, and justifiably so. I mean, uh, uh, she she was the best player in the state, bar none. I mean, she really and truly well, was. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of good players in that team. Uh, I, I could say that uh, Sean Whitehead and Matt Gray were seniors. They were they were really good players, had great careers. And Mickey Mounsey was a freshman on that team. Yeah. Um, and he was a, he was a great player. We only had him for a year because he went to Avon, but but she was she was she was like the, the way she played, so smart, moved and just the uh, the way she passed the puck, great passer of the puck, and um, and you know what she could hold her own physically. She wasn't out there you know knocking people down, but she wasn't uh, getting thrown around. That's the thing she could hold her own. Oh yeah, no no doubt about that. And uh, had to be a thrill for you to see the success that she had in international play, uh, gold and silver medals in the Olympic in the Olympics, and. Uh, just, just a, a a great career. Yeah, she. I mean, like I said, she's um, one of a kind, and she she did great in the Olympics and was one of their top players. And um, so, yeah, it's something that you know, it was, it's a long time ago. It seems like it was nineteen ninety eight when she graduated, but um, something we'll always remember. And I remember uh, there was one season. In fact, I I was doing the game the the night that. Uh, that she uh, was uh, injured. Uh, it was very early in the season, had to miss uh, the rest of the year, and uh, she had to come back from a, a rather serious injury. Yeah, it was like it was against Brady early in the year, like the Christmas game, and he just kind of got in a bad position, and, and the kid kind of fell on her, and um, 
her knee went back, and she, I believe it was an ACL tear, and back then it wasn't quite as quick as a recovery, and it's still a long recovery, but she didn't, she missed two seasons. She missed the rest of that season. That was her sophomore year, and then her junior year, um, she had more complications and, and didn't play, so she missed like two years. She yeah. played every game her freshman year, and then she played every game her senior year, so um, we were fortunate because you, you really didn't know if she was ever going to be able to come back, but she did her senior year and came back strong as ever, and we had a great season. So. Well, let's talk about uh, the last three seasons, three consecutive uh, Division One state championships. How difficult, Dunk, was it to uh, to navigate around COVID? That was a, a very difficult time for, for everybody, and uh, certainly sports were in chaos at that time. We were, didn't know exactly what was going to happen. How did, how did you navigate around that? Well, I mean, it all started in, in 2020. We, we were getting ready to play Bedford in the state championship game, the 2020 season, and um, the day before they pulled the plug. Yeah. Um, you know, and there was only a couple cases then, but they didn't know, so who, who knows. But, you know, I feel bad still for those seniors. They never got the opportunity. Matt Hostile was a senior on that team captain, and Parker Taylor was our goalie. Um so I feel bad for those kids never to get that opportunity to play that game. Um, and then, obviously, the next season, we had no idea if we were going to play. We were hoping, obviously. And then we didn't start the season until, I want to say, like January, like 14, 15, we started practicing. Um, and then games, some games would get canceled. And then it was like day-to-day. It literally was day-to-day. And, you know, you had the mask, you had to sign in at the rink with the temperature thing. It's just, it was... It was a lot, and but fortunately, we got to play, and, and we ended up playing. Um, I think we were played. We were sixteen and two. I know that, so we must have played fourteen regular season games, which is pretty good considering we didn't start playing games till like third week in January. And if we had a regular tournament, and played four rounds of the tournament, and, and got to the finals. Uh, you know, there was no fans. It was a little different for those kids that you know were playing at the JFK against Salem in the finals, and there's literally, you know, twenty sets of parents for each team there. Yeah. So it was different. But, but we got to play. I mean, I know Massachusetts didn't even have a season. Some of the prep schools didn't play. So, so I think we're fortunate that we got the season in, and um, obviously we won, which was nice. Um, and then last year. It was pretty much normal. I'm trying to think. Early in the year, we might have had math early in the year, but um, it was pretty much normal. We played a full season, and we didn't get games canceled. And, and you know, it's still out there, I guess. But, you know, now it's not like it gets COVID. It's not like you're shutting the team down. It's totally different now. So hopefully hopefully we're past, we're past it. <laughs> let, let us hope. Let, let us hope. How, how has coaching changed, Dunk, uh, since you took over 33 years ago? Well, it's totally different as far as the way you – and I'm not a big screamer, yeller, or that type anyways, but you're talking to the kids, you definitely – the kids are different as far as you got to be a little more um, – you know, the old school type of guys aren't going to survive anymore. Kids, kids aren't going to, you know, really – I mean, I don't know if they're more sensitive, or, but it's just you guys got to be – handle them a little careful, more careful, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> um, the game – itself i mean it seems like the kids are although we're not big it seems like the kids are bigger and stronger and faster every year um we're not a big team but but the, the kids are bigger and and um, the equipment's better and um and I, I 
think the level of play, I don't know. I think back 20 years ago, there was more teams that more uh, teams that were had a chance to win. I think part of that is the junior thing and the U18s and the U16s. Those kids, some kids leave. We, we've been fortunate. We don't lose a lot of kids. Um, so, but it's been good. Well, it's been a great run, Dunk, and I hope it continues for uh, a number of years to come. We uh, appreciate what you do and the success that uh, you and the teams you've coached uh, have had over the years, and uh, I look forward to a, a, a great season. Well, okay, Ken, hopefully, um, you know, we're a young team, a little different team than we were last year, um, but, you know, we're going to give it our best, and we look forward to having you do the games there at the Evan Arena. Well, I, I enjoy doing them very much, and uh, so far, so good. So, Dunk, thank you, yep. and uh, we will see you soon. Okay, thanks, Ken. Thanks, Dunk. Duncan Walsh, head coach, 33 years, Concord High School, nine state championships, including three in a row, and uh, off to a good start this season. That'll do it for this edition of Kale & Company. Thank you for joining us here on WKXL and NHTalkRadio.com, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Mm-hmm.